Well, remember, I'm not a mental health provider, right? I'm a medical doctor, so I'm not, I know enough to be dangerous about the mental health parts of this illness, having done it now for 30 plus years. But the facts are irrefutable that this is a mind-body illness. It's not just a mental illness and it's not just a physical illness. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome to the Seasoned RD Podcast. Today, we get to have another conversation with Dr. Phil Mailer. The first time he was with us, the information was so packed that we did have to separate it into two episodes. And this time, there are two main things. Well, I should say three that I wanted to accomplish. And just as a reminder, when you hear the other voice here, it's Dr. Michaela Voss, who is our guest co-host in the medical series. So the first thing I wanted to highlight about what I know about Dr. Mailer is his heart and the heart of patient care that sometimes we don't think of when we read his books or any of the 600 papers he's authored that, you know, the heart of the medical provider is so important. The second part is surrounding yourself with a good team. So I asked him, how do you do that? And listen in for his answer. And the main discussion was to highlight Dr. Mailer's fourth edition of the medical complications text, which reminded me this is the fourth edition. And if you have listened to Dr. Margot Main's episode, she said that someone told her when she was in her undergrad or early on in her training that eating disorders were just a phase or a fad. So clearly that's not true. And as a reminder, we will be wrapping up this podcast with original recordings in mid-April. So I hope you will continue to tune in because we still have amazing guests who will be coming out regularly until then. And there's a point that I need to clarify. I shared a pretty tender moment with you all last week, and I don't think I was clear with my experience a year ago how much it helped me realize my professional purpose and that I have some news to share that I'll give you more information as we near that final recording. So thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Phil Mailer. Welcome, Dr. Phil Mailer, to the Seasoned RD podcast. Thanks for having me again. Well, I I was teasing Kelly, your admin, that I think Dr. Mailer's probably pretty sick of me because we just spent the last several days together at the IADEP conference. (laughs) But I can tell you, I can listen to your lectures a hundred times and still learn something new. So you've already... We've already asked you the regular icebreaker question, so I have one for you, a different one. So we know that an apple a day doesn't always keep the doctor away. How do you help your patients when they have to return? What do you say to them? Well, the reality is that 
that eating disorders have a high recidivism rate. Maybe it gets a little better as people get a bit older. I think many people believe that brain maturity continues until you're in your late 20s or early 30s. And so if you believe, which I think is correct, that this is certainly a mental disorder, then maturation of the brain is important because maybe they're going to start thinking about this illness a bit differently and things that are currently important to them will no longer be important at a certain point in time. So therefore, I implore people that uh, you can't give up, right? You, you don't give up on something that's a curable illness when you're a year into it and you're 24 years old, because a lot of things can change. And even if it goes into remission at age 32, you still have another 50, 60 good years to live. And so that calculus points towards pushing on and trying to help these people and not give up. But when a diabetic comes back into the hospital with their seventh bout of diabetic ketoacidosis this year, you know, you wonder what can we do better to keep them out of the hospital, but you don't beat them up and you don't castigate them and deprecate them. And you try to figure out where the flaw is and how we can avoid another admission for DKA. And when somebody getting chemotherapy gets an infection and needs to be readmitted, and they were just here last week, we don't form judgments about them and shame them and make them feel guilty. And so on the unit that I founded and continue to work, the acute unit at Denver Health, where we take care of the country's most extreme form of eating disorders and medically stabilize them, there is a recidivism rate, there is a readmission rate. It varies month to month, but there's always one or two patients that get readmitted. Now, their previous admission may have been 17 years ago. We've been in business a long time, or it could have been 17 months ago. Regardless, my opener to the patients is that uh, there's no reason to be ashamed. There's no reason to feel guilty. This is the type of illness that takes a lot of bites at that apple you were talking about. And uh, we're here to help. We don't pass judgment and we don't cast aspersions against you. We're here to help because we believe you can get beyond this illness. And our job is to medically stabilize you so you can go on to get additional levels of care for your eating disorder. And uh, this message of no guilt, no shame, you've done nothing wrong, is one that has to be heard. Mm -hmm. It has to resonate with all our staff because all you need are one or two of our large group of staff to say the wrong thing. And regardless of what everybody else is saying, that patient's going to have lost hope. Mm -hmm. So that would be a consistent message that we're here to help. And we also have to have a consistent message of optimism, of prevailing, of fortitude, of hope that you have a curable illness and with the right treatment. It's not an easy illness. It's tough to extricate yourself from it. And that's why it continues to have the horribly high lethality that it does. We always hear about this 19-year-old died of anorexia and this 27-year-old and this 35-year-old died of their active disease. That shouldn't happen. We need to make a bigger dent in that and bend the curve and reduce the mortality rate in these patients. How do you, how do you work with families or supporters or caregivers when they 
don't believe that this is a mental illness that the person might not be able to control because of cultural or religious beliefs, and they're not on the same page as you are about mental health? Well, remember, I'm not a mental health provider, right? I'm a medical doctor, internal medicine training, additional training. So I'm not, I know enough to be dangerous about the mental health parts of this illness, having done it now for 30 plus years. But the facts are irrefutable that this is a mind-body illness. It's not just a mental illness and it's not just a physical illness. And increasingly, we're recognizing that that the mind affects the body and the body affects the mind and it goes both ways. And I don't really care if someone is adamant that this is not a mental illness, something else is controlling it or vice versa, that it is a mental illness and it doesn't have medical implications. They are speaking uh, speciousness and that is just not the facts. And we have to be driven by facts. This is a mental illness that has medical complications and there's no getting around that for and sure i try to which i think i'm entitled to at this stage in my life say that you know i'm an old man and i've been doing this for a long time and i can tell you that what you're saying is wrong and uh, for the sake of your loved one lying in front of us here we have to come to some understanding we can't be fighting about that mm, uh, i love I, that i can give in a little and you can give in a little but if we're both going to dig our heels in and be adamant that our positions are the only ones, this loved one sitting in front of us is going to suffer, not you or I. Mm. So that's the message I try to give in this regard. And it generally works. Uh, I've taken care of close to 3000 patients on acute since I founded it. And wow, the vast majority, the vast, vast majority uh, leave there a heck of a lot healthier. And uh, the vast majority get better over time. Uh, again, it may take a few bites of that apple, but yeah. uh, we're going to get there. And the other thing to remember is that if you look at Cameron Eddy's paper uh, from Mass General that was published now probably six or seven years ago, remember she showed that at 15 or 20 years, I forget what the number was, there was still a substantial number of people that were going to get their first recovery then. Huh. And so that's a paper that I really try to share with people. And, you know, if you want to have a quick guide to that, Some not 100% accurate, but I think it gives the picture that maybe 50% recover in the first 10 years, and maybe the next 50% won't recover till the second 10 years. You know, yeah. we have work to do, and we have to stay on the road and have fortitude and try to, to prevail against this illness, which often is striking young people in the prime of their lives and depriving society and their families and themselves of potentially very fruitful life. So uh, yeah, that's yeah. What I my patience. You know, you the last episode you did with us, we titled "Writing Hope on Your Prescription Pad." So as the doctor, that's the prescription that you're writing for them, and you're giving them that authority that you have earned over these years to say, "I." I I know that it's not going to help us to argue about this, but also just that that apple. I I use that analogy because you use that at the IADEP conference, which it takes m- multiple bites for the apple, and so it really does paint the picture that you can get better. So I have a patient who, when she talks about you, she really really lights up. And she just had a DEXA scan recently, 
And she asked me, she looked at the numbers and she said, the, the weight is, is wrong on her DEXA form. And so will that affect her, the, the answer or the, you know, the results of her scan if the weight is not accurate? No, I mean, uh, not to my knowledge. This is a, you know, a radiology procedure, and they don't need to know your weight. You know, one thing we we forget is that men, as they age, need to get DEXAs as well. Nothing to do with eating disorders, just part of nutrition. And and so I had my first DEXA a couple of years ago, and they didn't ask me my weight. So okay, I'm not aware that it does. It's really based on the density of the bone that they're measuring. Uh, The age makes a difference because uh, for younger people, we use one reference. And for people over 50, we use a different set of references. But I'm not aware that the weight makes a a big difference. It's really, you want to look for the trajectory of the change. Is it getting better or worse? Mm -hmm. Then you want to look at the absolute uh, T-score, which is listed on your patient's DEXA scan. And where does it fall? But I don't think that that one has the previous scores, does it? No, I don't see that. But I, I would say that, oh, it does. There is one table that has it. And it says, yeah, there is something there. Yeah, she's continued, unfortunately, to lo- to lose bone density. Mm-hmm. And if I'm reading this correct, it looks like she lost in her hip 4 or 5%, which is very significant. Okay. Um, so thank you for that because what what do I what do I do to help her? I don't I don't know her age. I believe 31. 32, sorry. I don't know what her family plans are whether she wants to have children one day or not. I don't know what other medical issues she has going on but When I started in this field in the late 80s, we had nothing to treat the loss of bone mineral density in people with anorexia nervosa. And in fact, for years, there was a myth that was a myth, it was totally wrong, that birth control pills helped. And just like estrogen helps postmenopausal women with osteoporosis issues, we thought that both birth control pills could help young people And it turns out that that is false, but it's still a myth that's propagated by a lot of family docs that we have to debunk. And it also can falsely reassure the patient if they have withdrawal bleeding while they're on the pill, which we don't want to reassure them. But since then, there are now, in my opinion, not everybody agrees with me, but uh, in my opinion, there are five viable options to treat bone disease in these people. The best one is what you do for a living. It's weight restoration. It's uh, nutritional rehabilitation is by far the best one. And the sooner it can get done to get them probably up to around 90% of ideal body weight, you're probably protecting them at that point in time from ongoing losses. But the problem is, is that if it hasn't happened for a long time and there's been major losses, it's tough to get back to your original pre-morbid bone density scores. 
it's not that it's totally irreversible, but it's partially irreversible. And the sooner you jump on it and the quicker you get there, the better the patient's gonna be. We now have two long-term studies showing that if you have bad anorexia and perhaps ARFID as well, and perhaps atypical AN as well, perhaps, that your lifetime risk of having fragility fractures, meaning that you have fragile bones and even with minimal trauma, you're getting a, 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 a fracture is lifelong. The first study was from the Mayo Clinic around 2000. And there was just another study published from the Danish registry in the last year or two that showed the same sad results. So you're 25 years old, you've had anorexia for four years, you've really struggled, you haven't had a period in those years, and your BMI is you know 15 or 14 or 16, you're causing a lot of harm to your bones and it may be tough for you to recoup that and you need to be functional for the next 65 years. You don't wanna be all bent over and kyphotic and lose height as a result of these fractures in your spine and other places. It turns out, Beth, that your patient's bone density is not normal and it has gotten worse. But these results to me indicate that she does not need medicinal treatment. She just needs nutrition. She doesn't even qualify for osteoporosis or osteopenia. It's not normal what she has, but it's not good. And as the report says that she's 10% below young normal, um, but nevertheless, this is normal bone density per the WHO criteria. So I would use these results as Dr. Ernie Anderson taught me. He's a older uh, physician in this field, one of the he was the one that encouraged me to, to write my first book 20 years ago, and we're still in contact, and he's a co-editor on my new book. He, he's been a co-editor for all four volumes, all four editions, and he always said that you got to show patients objective evidence of their illness, and I do that all the time now. So I take the DEXA scan, and I say, here's you. Here's a woman who's 75 and you're like, you have the bones like a 75 year old woman right now and you're 25. Or you have the bones of a 35 year old person and you're 25 and that's not good either, but it could be a lot worse. So if it's horrible, I use it to compel them to make an immediate change. If it's not normal, but not horrible, I say, here's your opportunity. Before you get irreversible changes, jump on. And so these, results are useful to, to talk to a patient about. So the message for your person is, I don't think the weight makes a difference. The score is the score. Her bones are not what they need to be, but if she turns it around, she could potentially prevent irreversible changes here and prevent a lot of painful fractures from happening with minimal trauma later in life. And so the time is now, I would tell her, to get your weight up, get your periods back naturally, and then let's repeat your scan in about a year and a half or so to see uh, where it's going. All right. We're going to take a quick break to recognize the sponsor of this episode. And I'm always surprised and saddened when people don't know about this resource. It truly is life-changing. Acute Center for Eating Disorders and Severe Malnutrition is your partner, our partner, my partner, in assessment, 
referral and treatment for patients at risk for feeding syndrome, as well as those experiencing other dangerous medical complications of malnutrition, of purging, excessive exercise. ACUTE is the only dedicated inpatient medical stabilization program in the country with resources, environment, and experience to treat the most medically severe cases of eating disorders. This life-saving care is covered by medical insurance. That preserves valuable behavioral health benefits for patients as they continue the recovery process. When they are medically stable, patients discharge to the appropriate next level of care, typically back to you and their established eating disorder care team or referring IP or res program. All care at ACUTE is overseen by our guest today, Dr. Phil Mailer, the world's leading expert in medical treatment of eating disorders. Expertise and experience matter when seeking medical care for a severe eating disorder. You deserve the unmatched understanding of Dr. Mailer and the acute team, what they bring to each and every case. So I'd like to go back to something you said about how the numbers can be normal within the WHO data criteria. I run into that problem a lot where the radiologist says normal for age, but I know that they're not normal. And so how do you explain that to families that normal isn't always normal? Well, there's a range, right? So it's just like a potassium level in the blood. Normal is from, let's say, 3.5 to 5. You don't want to be at 3.5 because, A, there's a bit of lack of accuracy in a blood test, so maybe it's really 3.3. And we know that cardiac arrhythmias go up as you get lower. So why not try to be in the middle of normal rather than on the border of normal? So that's one way to explain it to people that you just got under the cut. You made the cut, but you're just barely on the team. And that's not good Mm -hmm. enough. We have to get you, you know, better than that. And then remember that everything is a, a normal distribution, right? So even when you are at point X, you could still be multiple standard deviations below the mean, and you don't want to be there. You want to be well within the mean. For so many things in the body, that's true, that risks of X, Y, or Z go up as you head down. You don't want to wait till you cross that line. Even being there is a precarious perch to be on. It's sort of how I explain it. So. I love that. And we are going to talk with, we actually have talked with Dane Delaney, your physical therapist, and she taught us some things about, for example, evidence-based yoga is the evidence base for eating disorders, but not when they're so fragile. A pose that they can do will end up injuring their bones. And I'm worried about that with my patient, that if we continue down this road, that even small activity because you know so many of our patients struggle with if I can't be active then I can't eat right that is the sentiment and so if there's a fracture you're not going to be able to be active okay so bones you mentioned we're talking about your new at your new edition your fourth edition this is packed with so much. And I said to you, I'd like to talk to you about that when we have our podcast. And you said, oh, I haven't read that book. So in a nutshell, it sounded like there were a couple of other things that may not be reversible that we want to get really ahead of. So bone density is one. And uh, people that purge the 
the teeth erosions are not reversible and and they happen even on fancy expensive uh, what do you call them uh, oh veneers or yeah they can affect those as well okay. and then we're not sure that the brain cognitive function gets better so the brain size may go back to normal on ct or mri but there's some evidence that IQIs and other higher functioning things may never completely go back to normal. And so those are a, a few of the things that we worry about that may not completely go back to normal. Do you know, like, if, it, if it's based on the amount of time that someone's been struggling or? Sure. How often they purge for the yeah. chronicity mm-hmm. of the illness, certainly for the bones and for the brain, for sure. Okay. I would also anticipate the earlier the the eating disorder has an onset, the more it would affect the brain because the brain is going through so many changes and so plastic in those first 25 years too. That's Someone the thing with the bones, you know, you accrue peak bone mass by about the age of 19, 20, 21. You, you don't get a lot of new bone after that. So if your eating disorder hits at 36, it's less likely to be deleterious to the bone long-term than if it hits at 18. How old can you take people, how young are your patients? Can you send someone to acute? 15 and up. Okay. And there is no upper age. The oldest lady I've taken care of on acute is 68. And uh, she did great. It was her first bout of anorexia. And uh, she's 76 now. Mm. She sent me her ninth Christmas card two months ago that she's doing. Oh, my gosh. This is where, this is the heart of Dr. Mailer. I honestly know that because right before we hit record, you had to take a call. I'm good friends with Millie Plotkin, who says that when you're in meetings that you will just get out. If there's something happening with one of your patients, that that is the most important thing. These meetings can wait. And I've, I just see that heart. And I, that's what I wanted people to hear in this, in this first part. You've got the science over 600 articles that you've authored and been part of. And so the heart, you don't read that when you're in this book, but I know it because of the things that you've said. So another piece of this, I wanted to ask you with acute, we didn't have that before you. So now we do, and we can send folks who are really compromised your way. How do you I will say for this patient that we were talking about, um, she did say that the the people there seem that they get along well and it's a good work environment. They treat each other well. How do you do that? How do you surround yourself with people like that? And I would even add on to that. How do you do that in the setting of so much chronicity Mm -hmm. and return patients and recidivism that can cause a lot of burnout, but you tend to keep these people there and passionate and the hope going? Well, it's uh, it's not simple. I wouldn't say we're immune from burnout. It, it affects us and uh, COVID had a rough effect on everybody in healthcare, I think. But, you know, it's, I think about 98% of our staff are female. And I started acute with two staff. I had a nurse and a half-time dietitian and uh, that's it. We have about 275 full-time employees now. Our turnover is low. I'd say 98% of our employees are female. And so since about 85% of our patients are female, 
which is higher than you'd expect, right? If you believe the 20 to one ratio, it should be different than that. But we see a lot more males, I think, because they come out of the closet later. And so they're more severe. But nevertheless, most of our staff are female. And so you have a predominantly female illness with predominantly female staff. And so I think they say that, you know, by the grace of God, go I. I try to teach something that I learned many years ago, that empathy and sympathy are not the same thing. If you look them up, they're very different. Sympathy is, you know, I feel bad for you, but that doesn't say much, right? I feel bad for you, but, but empathy says that this could be me there where you are. That's very different. Having been a patient myself, unfortunately, over the last couple of years where I've sort of totally been immune to that stuff, it's a wake-up call and it's humbling. And you feel so vulnerable as a patient, you know, and I don't tell people I'm a doctor when they walk in the room to take care of me because I don't want to make the interaction to be false. But I also want to keep in my back pocket in case I need to smack them over the head with something they say or do. And so they're very vulnerable, our patients, and especially the way they look often and all the changes that happen to the body. And if you don't have empathy, it can be a very fatiguing illness. It's tough to work with the, the apex of both medical and psychiatric together. A lot of people want to be psychiatrists and take care of the healthy worried. And some people want to be medical doctors and take care of the sick that don't have any mental issues. But when you got the intersect of two bad ones, it's tough. It's been a lot of learning for me over the years. You got to be able to have the right people there who really have a purpose in what they do every day and to have empathy, to be able to show them their results, to see the people getting better and how much they can improve. And they come in, they can't lift their neck off the bed and suddenly they're walking with the gate belt and then the gate belt is off and suddenly they're walking again and their labs are getting better and their heart rate picks up from, you know, 22 and it's in the forties now and et cetera. So, and people, they interact with you differently. The patients, as they get better, they smile, there's, there's some life there. And so I think it's the confluence of all of those things. And I always tell them that, you know, there's few things in medicine where you can really be uniquely qualified. You know, you can go anywhere to get your appendix out tonight, but when you have a BMI as an adult of nine and your pulse is 25 and your body temperature is 94 and all of your labs are abnormal and you can't walk, that's a sacred task that we're given. And we have to avail ourselves of that opportunity and view it that way, that it's a sacred opportunity. I'm a pretty nice guy most of the time, but I don't tolerate, you know, having worked at Denver Health now for 38 years, it's an inner city hospital. I was the chief medical officer. I was the medical director of the whole place. You gotta know when to fight. And if things are being said wrong, inappropriate comments, laziness, egregious mistakes that, you know, don't care that, that you can't, there's no waiting around for that. You have to confront that right away and let people know that won't be tolerated. Mm-hmm. So we've been fortunate at Acute that we have a very informed staff. I certainly exhort them and push them and send them articles to read all the time and challenge them. And we have good leadership on the unit. We have a gorgeous unit. The hospital built us a brand new unit. 
about four years ago. It's absolutely stunningly gorgeous. Faces the Rocky Mountains, so that gives people a good feeling every day. I think it's all of those things together, but there's always a tincture of luck in things, right? Nobody's that good. That There's always luck and the grace of God that gets you there. So you need all of those things to, to be successful in this field. And, and, you know, this is actually brings us to this, this wrap up kind of question that I have, but Ovidio Bermudez said at a new attendee breakfast to the people at the table, I hope you get bit by the bug because we've interviewed over 80 people on this podcast so far. And so many of them as their start in eating disorders, like you will say, I didn't even know how to spell anorexia nervosa. And so many people will say, I started in a whole different thing, but once I got into it, I was bit by the bug. And they don't use those terms, but that's Dr. Bermudez's descriptor. And I think the way that you are working with your staff, if they're new, you're allowing them to grow and do research and come up with the, these, these ideas of, I think we should study this. I'm on to something here. But also, if they're saying things that aren't helpful, you're kind of pushing them in a way that's only going to help the growth of them to get bit by the bug. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, uh, you've heard me say this issue of hope. I firmly believe that. And therefore, I'm not a big fan of this somewhat controversial issue in eating disorders that was thrust upon us in the last year of terminal anorexia nervosa. I'm not a fan of that term. I would qualify that by saying that I've worked my entire life at a safety net hospital, Denver Health, which is one of the best in the country. But prior to Obamacare, you know, we barely got by every year. Our profit margin was a rounding error for big for-profit hospitals. I understand the critical import of being a good steward of healthcare dollars. I, I get that. And I understand and appreciate there's a role for palliative care and hospice all the time. But in eating disorders, I have great pause before I throw around that term. And people in their 20s shouldn't be having that tag applied to them, in my opinion. I think what you said, Beth, is, is very true. There's a bug that bites you in this field, and it keeps you coming back for more, even though it's not easy. But when you see the results and you see the good outcomes and you see people that write you letters years later that they're parents and grandparents now, it's, you know, if you've been in the field a long time, you're gonna get that. And that's a reason to keep going forward. This is a curable illness. Uh, we need to persevere for the sake of our patients. We have to give them hope. And the last thing I would say is that the, the field is burgeoning. It's burgeoning in interest. It's unfortunately burgeoning in cases. A lot maybe due to COVID. But most exciting, it's burgeoning in new opportunities and research and new findings. There's so many things that have changed our practice and we try to talk about them in the new book. And we put in, uh, in the new edition, a couple new chapters. We have one chapter that's all about transgender and eating disorders. That's uh, an exploding problem. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because it's a body image issue, but they're unique issues and you can't be casual about how you take care of those people because uh, they have unique medical needs and unique mental health needs. Yeah. This whole idea of atypical anorexia nervosa 
the message there is you can no longer applaud any form of weight loss, regardless of how fast and how marked it was. That's no longer correct. Thank There's you. There's a medical price to pay for that. And so we have a new chapter on that in there. But my point is that every day we stay in this field, we're going to be exposed to new findings. And uh, that's why we publish a lot, because we want to share our findings and get the word out. And there'll be a new test that I think will be prime time in eating disorders relevant to your patient, Beth. It's called uh, TBS. It's a bone, bone score. It stands for trabecular bone score. And I think it may have a real place in the teenagers and people in their 20s when you're not sure what to do with their bad scores. And if their DEXA scan results are abnormal and their TBS is abnormal, in my mind, that's more of a reason to treat them. But if the bone density is abnormal, but the TBS is still okay, maybe you can restrain yourself and just work with your dietitian to weight restore them and don't put them on medicines. But this is brand new stuff. This whole thing that our group wrote many papers on, the fact that the QT interval prolongation on the EKG, we used to say, oh, it's your anorexia, you'll be fine. That is false. And people are dying because of that. It is not inherent to anorexia. We've proven that. And if you see it, you need to look for electrolyte changes. Maybe they're purging when they lie and they lie to you, or maybe they're on medicines that are causing it. So we didn't know these things just two, three years ago. So the exciting part is you have all these new findings coming out and all this new thirst for more knowledge in this regard that that's more of a reason to have hope. It's not a, a field that is tethered by inertia, but rather we're trying to shake things up and disrupt things and challenge lore. And that's good for our patients because better care will emanate from that efforts. Mm, thank you for that with the burgeoning efforts. And we are, we do get a chance to interview Dr. Gibson on the podcast. And so I, I'm thinking of, you know, as you are, you said earlier, I'm an old man. <laughs> so I happen to know a lot of things. And this is what you and I are both passionate about, too, is passing on that knowledge to the incoming. That's what this podcast is all about. That's why we have Abby here. She's a newer, newer dietitian in the field. We have Dr. Voss here, who's a medical provider, and, and they have questions in their own practices that we really don't you know, we don't know the answers to. And so Dr. Gibson can carry that torch a little bit, right? Yeah, we hope so. And uh, there's another new lady on our unit, Allison Nitch, who uh, gave a presentation that you may have gone to. She's a up and coming star. And uh, she and I just completed an entire issue of the Journal of Eating Disorders that Philippa Hay and Steve Tuiz down in Australia, who are the editors of that journal, they asked us to do it. So there's nothing psych in this issue. It's entirely medical and it should be out in about uh, two months. Allison and I are the co-editors of this special issue. I think it has about 12 or 13 articles, really state-of-the-art, all with hundreds of references and uh, okay. similar to what I did International Journal back in uh, 2016. So it's been about seven years since then. So it was time for an update and Philippa and Steve asked us to do this and we just completed it. So that's awesome. We'll make sure that in future episodes that we include the, the links and I'll work with, I'll work with Kelly 
for when that comes out, I'll keep bugging her and then we can put those links out for people who are listening. Thank you so much. And thank you for joining us one more time, Dr. Mailer on the Seasoned RD podcast. We really appreciate you. I appreciate the invitation. Just uh, get the word out about acute that uh, we can help. Don't give up. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.